Ladies and gentlemen, before we start this episode, we might be going into some territory that's a little iffy, uh, viewer discretion is advised, uh, and none of the stuff that we go over we necessarily agree with. It's just that sometimes when you go into the history of country music, some, some of the stuff is a little bit... It's a little bit touchy. It's a little bit scary. Um, we don't endorse. We don't endorse it, but for historical reasons, we feel like we have to go over it. This episode is going to be covering uh, a bit of racist topics, uh, but we're going to be trying to do it from uh, an academic and historical perspective that we can. It's just. It's just one of those things. If you don't talk about it, then it's easy to forget, and we don't want to forget about something this terrible so that we do uh those who forget history are doomed to repeat it exactly exactly so for this episode we're definitely i definitely decided on ending at a certain year as opposed to just wherever. Uh, I don't remember if we did last time. To be honest, episode-wise, it's been a, several episodes since we did one of these. Uh, and we've only I think we've only done two so far out of ten episodes. Time-wise, it's been <laughs> almost half a year, a year, since we started doing this podcast. RJ. I've... Yeah, I've mostly been focusing on getting the other podcast back up and onto its feet after a long hiatus, and I finally got this one back up. So, but anyways, um, so this episode is part three, as you could tell by the title, of our popular country music timeline. Uh, We are still pre-country music. We will have about another half of a century after this episode before we actually even get to recorded music. So this episode is still just going to be pre-recorded. So um, also just a note, especially listening to past episodes, because I just finished editing and putting up at at, at the time of this recording our second episode, which is the first part of this timeline walkthrough. The way I've been wording things makes it seem like the songs were released at the year um, that they that I mentioned. However, um, most of the, the the years are actually... It, think of it more of this is when the song became popular. Um, it's not necessarily when the song was released. Uh, there's not really a ton of good comparisons nowadays because pretty much in today's music culture, a song is released and if it becomes popular, it generally becomes popular when it's released. The only times I've seen it in recent history recent as in the past 50 years or so have been the two instances that come to mind are both when the music artist passed away i guess actually more than that like three or four because michael jackson's music charted again when he passed away same as uh, queen's music when freddie mercury passed away same with prince same with david bowie so those are the only times i can think of where a song charts several years after it's been released nowadays but this back back then everything was based on we're we're basing popularity mainly based on my criteria has been if the song is popular today like well well well-known folk tunes like danny boy or um oh Susanna, or if they had high sheet music sales because sheet music was a way that they tracked song popularity back during this time. So anyways, without any further ado, let's get into it. Uh, back about back where we left off, we're now in 1812. So the first song is Hail to the Chief. That's a country music song? None of these are country music. Ray, remember, this is all pre-country music. Country music officially was born in 1922? 19, in the 1920s, somewhere in the 1920s. This is all music that inspired or has ties to in some way country music. This song very is probably one of the lesser connected because it's very much a march or a fanfare instead of being a folk song. But I felt being the song about our president and how much country music is about uh, you know, patriotism, it was kind of important to mention this. 
I know. I was just. I know. It's re-explain. No, it it's it's good. It's that that was a very <laughs> pertinent question because this song might have made several people wonder that. So it was written in 1812. So this one was, I might say written in because I think that's how I wrote some of these. Some some of this research I did a while ago, but I did most of it today. So it's from 1812, written by James Sanderson and Sir Walter Scott. It is an English fanfare. So James Sanderson composed the music and set it to Sir Walter Scott's verses from The Lady of the Lake, including the boat song Hail to the Chief. So this, I think it was, it was like a whole bunch of verses that he tur- turned into several songs, and one of them happened to be Hail to the Chief. Um, the original published title of the song is March and Chorus in the Dramatic Romance of The Lady of the Lake. And the first use of the song for an American president, it was played to honor George Washington at the end of the War of 1812. It was not the president's song at this point. They just played that song there to honor them. It was played at the opening of the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal, which was attended by President John Quincy Adams. Uh, The first time it was used to honor the position of the president specifically was for Andrew Jackson in 1829 and was also used for the inauguration of Martin Van Buren. Uh, The first time that it was used for what it is used for today, the arrival of of the president, uh, was for John Tyler, and it was famously used for James Polk due to his tendency to enter a room unnoticed as he wasn't a very imposing figure. That's kind of funny, actually. That's, that's yeah, no, hilarious. That's, um, so the U.S. Department of Defense made it the official tribute to the president under the term of Harry Truman. Uh, it has been used for every president since, excluding Chester Arthur, who requested John Philip Sousa to compose a new piece. And the song was even used by Jefferson Davis during his time as the president of the Confederacy when the South seceded. Uh-oh. All right, and now the next song is Thou Bonnie Wood of Craigelia. Sorry if I mispronounced that last word. Uh, it was written in 1818 by Robert Tannehill and James Barr. It is a ballad, and then an altered version of the tune was used for the song Waltzing Matilda. I don't know what that song is, but that's true. I, I don't know either. All right, and then we have, we come up to another uh, nursery rhyme, Eeny, Meeny, Miny, Moe. It was written in 1820. The author is unknown. It's used as a counting game for children. And it may be based on an old Saxon diviner rhyme being called, quote, a heathen priest's song that begs the high goddess for an oracle while divining an oracle that may decide about life and death of a human, end quote. <laughs> That's very different than yeah. any, the. I guess maybe not. I guess because we associate the children's song, that's probably why. Often used as a means of making a choice. So, you know, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, and you're making the choice. Yeah, I gotcha. The words, as we know them, seem to have originated in the United States. However, with the word tiger in the second line originally being uh, the N-word, the common racist term oh. towards African Americans. Oh, oh, that's, that's terrible. Yep. <laughs> There have been several controversial incidents regarding use or implications of the original term over the past couple of decades. Um, I remember, it's weird, I actually did, this was part of the research I did a while ago uh, for this, and I, but I do remember one of them was like a school teacher, um, and I think that was either back in the 80s or 90s, but I did not write it down. All right, next song is D-Ken, D-Ken, I don't know, how, how would I... D apostrophe Y E. I know it's a do ye, but I can't. When I say it to me, at least, it sounds like I'm just saying D instead of D ye. D apostrophe what? D apostrophe Y E. Like do ye, do you? I think do you is do ye. I don't know, do. It's, it's, it's an English slang. Is all, is all I know. And, all right, anyway, so apologies because I'm probably botching it because I can't, apparently, my my mouth can't form the word, the slang correctly. Do ye ken John Peel? It's a traditional tune. However, the lyrics were written in 1820 by John Woodcock Graves. It's an English ballad and it translates to modern English as do you know John Peel? Ken means to be aware of or to know. 
It's set to the tune of Bonnie Annie. It was written about the real-life John Peel, a well-known English huntsman. And then we get to another kind of nursery rhyme, but this one I know has a tune. Do you know the Muffin Man? Which is great, because I've just watched... lives on Drury Lane? <laughs> well, she's married to the Muffin Man. The Muffin Man? It's the Muffin Man! She's married to, to the, the Muffin, muffin Man. man. <laughs> My lord, we found it. Well, what are you waiting for? Bring it in! <laughs> I may, we may have watched Shrek a few times too many. I definitely, I got it for like my seventh birthday, so I've seen it a bunch. And I actually just watched, our high school just did the musical for it, and it was really good. I was super impressed with that. I wasn't expecting it to be as good as it was, and it was so good. Anyway, so Do You Know the Muffin Man is written in 1820, authors unknown like most of these nursery rhymes, and is an English nursery rhyme. The next song is Araby's Daughter, written in 1822 by Thomas Moore and George Keelmark. It's an Irish air, which we had a few airs before. So for an explanation of what an air is, you can find that in the last episode that we did this, which is like episode three or four. I don't know. Okay. Now we come to a song that you probably are familiar with called Home Sweet Home. No. It's more commonly known nowadays as There's No Place Like Home. (laughs) Yep. All right. Written in 1823 by John Howard Payne and Henry Bishop. It is an American ballad. It was adapted from Payne's opera Clary or The Maid of Milan. It initially sold 100,000 plus copies. Uh, Bishop sold sheet music for it as a parlor ballad in 1852, where it became even more popular during the American Civil War and after. May have had an association with closing time at drinking establishments for a time, much like people always play closing time now. Yeah. Uh, it reportedly was banned from being played in Union Army camps in the Civil War for likely causing desertion due to the imagery of home and safety. I mean, I can't blame him. For sure. Um, Most famously, it's been used in the score for 1939's The Wizard of Oz as a counterpart to Over the Rainbow, as well as the basis for the now famous quote, there's no place like home, that Dorothy says in the film. Hmm. And it was notably recorded in country music by Randy Travis on his debut album, The Storms of Life. Okay. Then we get to the song of the Western man, also called Trelawney. Written in 1824 by Robert Stephen Hawker, it's a Cornish patriotic song, uh, possibly inspired by the song Come All Ye Jolly Tinner Boys. It's a regular favorite considered an unofficial Cornish anthem sung at Cornish rugby union matches. So very, very popular over there. Um, The first verse is occasionally taught to school children to sing at events such as Murdoch Day and St. Piran's Day. Murdoch Day. Yeah, it's a cool name. And that's... All the rest of this research I literally did at school today. Um, all right, here. So the next we get to Cherry Ripe. It was written in 1825 by Robert Herrick and Charles Edward Horn. And it's an English poem that was obviously turned into a song. I don't know why I put English poem. Uh, it's probably a ballad, I imagine then. Um, so a popular painting based on the song was made by John Everett Millay. Apologies, I probably I might have botched that name. In 1879, the painting features a young girl sitting next to a pile of cherries. I, it kind of looked like they were in like a bowl made of leaves or something like that. I don't know. Okay. Um, and so uh, Wikipedia claims something that I was not able to find anywhere else. I couldn't find. Uh, it didn't like. It wasn't cited on Wikipedia, and when I tried Googling it, I didn't really find anything else that didn't basically regurgitate word for word what Wikipedia said about it. But apparently, according to Wikipedia, the girl in the painting is Malay's young niece, Lucinda Ruby, who was tragically killed under the arches of London Bridge Station, uh, like, days after the painting was made. Oh, and tales say a mysterious voice sings the song Cherry Ripe through the catacombs. Oh. So, you get yourself a ghost story there, too. <laughs> yeah. Oh. yeah. All right. Um, 
Then we get to The Minstrels Returned from the War, written in 1825 by John Hill Hewitt. It's a parlor song. Um, and interesting. So while Hewitt was a songwriter in the South, uh, he sent the song to his brother who lived in Boston to publish, which led the song to uh, become an international success, which was so it's the first song by an American composer to become an international success. And then we get to Peter Peter Pumpkin Eater, the next nursery rhyme, written in 1825, again by an unknown author. Then next up is The Old Oaken Bucket, which was written in 1826 by Samuel Woodworth and George Kylemark. Uh, par- parlor song, and it was popular with American school children. Next up, we got I'd Be a Butterfly, written in 1827 by Thomas Haynes Bailey, a ballad that was written under, quote, romantic circumstances, end quote, while staying with his wife in Southampton, uh, and the song quickly became a universally popular song. Romantic. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what romantic circumstances mean. All right, here we go. We dabbled a little bit with the racism before, but here, here, here we go. <clears throat> Our next song is Jump Jim Crow, which I am sure a lot of people have heard about. I know you and I have heard about it, even if you might not remember having heard about it in high school, in history classes. Yeah, because it's of, Jim Crow. Well, yep, yep. yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the author is unknown. Adapted in 1828 by Thomas D. Rice, who was a minstrel. And now we're to... Um, so in the first part, we meant it, we talked about minstrels and minstrel music. But that was talking about Middle Ages minstrel music. Now we're talking about minstrels and minstrelsy from um, early America. Racist. And that's... Um, it's blackface entertainment. It is considered the first, as I mentioned in the first episode, it's considered the first truly American um, form of music and entertainment, like originally American. Because ever all the other all the other popular music prior to this was stuff that was just brought over from England. Nothing, it hadn't it hadn't developed into anything new. This was the first thing, and I explained all this about how it kind of died, but also became vaudeville and which eventually became variety shows jeez thank god it's yeah well yeah it only took long enough well minstrelsy died out earlier on but you know so it was popularized in minstrelsy performance by rice he'd be dressed in blackface for the character which the song is named after so the character jim crow this performance in turn popularized the public perception with white americans of african-americans as being quote lazy untrustworthy dumb and unworthy of integration end quote which is awful yeah that's that's yeah. pretty bad that's it's pretty really bad and due to also due to this the term jim crow became an offensive term for african-americans in the 19th century basically imagine the n-word being said by a white person today that's what I imagined calling an African-American Jim Crow was like back then, which only really died out when they started using the term. Actually, I don't even know if it died out then. I, I imagine it kind of did. I think it was just really the 19th and maybe in the early 20th century, because that's when the Jim Crow laws started. Local and state segregation laws in the southern U.S. in the 19th and early 20th century and those laws existed until the civil rights movement in the 1960s. So it's, it's yeah, kind of disgusting how long it took us to. It's awful. People can be awful sometimes. Yeah. It's definitely not America's proudest moment. But it if official the Jim Crow laws officially were quashed out by the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Jim Crow was also initially used for the name of one of the crows in the 1941 Walt Disney animated film Dumbo. However, the name was changed to Dandy Crow to avoid controversy. That didn't 
I mean, at the time it avoided controversy, but there's definitely minor controversy now. Um, film and animation historians are kind of on different sides with this. Some of them basically decry the whole portrayal. But a lot of historians point to things like how the stereotyping is more minimal than a lot of the other material at the time that had racial stereotyping. And it was less racist and less less of a less of a stereotype. And that Disney paints the characters in more positive light. Like they're the, they're the only characters in the film that are pretty much sympathetic to Dumbo. Um, and also, all but one of the crows was actually uh, performed by African Americans, the Hall Johnson Choir. So that's that's really cool that like they. It, yeah, it's kind of it's because cool. even even today, representation of if this character is this ethnicity, it should be played by a person of that ethnicity. It, even in animation, that's still a huge struggle today. Not nearly as much as it was even 10 years ago, but like to see back in the 40s, Disney going, we're going to have African-Americans play these characters that basically everybody knows that were based on African-Americans. So that was really cool. So moving on, we have Oh No, We Never Mention Her, which is written in 1828 by Thomas Haynes Bailey and E. Riley. Uh, Bell- never mentioned too. <laughs> it was a ballad. It was actually originally written about a man. So it was originally ca- titled, Oh No, We Never Mentioned Him. Never mentioned too. There it is. I was waiting for your bad joke. <laughs> All right. Uh, next up, we have Tyrolee's Evening Hymn, written in 1828 by Felicia Hemmons and Augusta Brown. It was a hymnal or a sacred song. Uh, and then we have another hymnal or sacred song in 1829, written by Thomas Moore and Oliver Shaw, called There's Nothing True But Heaven. And now we're back to racism. Mm. This this episode is going to be filled with a lot of songs that are uh, racist or have ties to minstrelsy. Because, re- remember, to put it in perspective, during this time period, the 1800s, minstrelsy is the popular form of entertainment. So that's... It's like having your music played on... Um, I don't know what's something like that would be super big to have your music. I like TikTok or SNL or something. I don't know. What are it's, the kids listening to these days? <laughs> it's 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 having it on. So a lot of a lot of what's popular comes from what's performed at the minstrelsy shows. So a lot of a lot of the folk songs were performed, um, but there are certain ones I'll specifically mention. So this one's called again Zip Coon. Written between 1829 and 1834 by an unknown author, it is a folk-slash-minstrel song. It's penned to the same tune as Turkey and the Straw, uh, and inspired the minstrelsy character of the same name, Zip Coon, uh, created by George Washington Dixon. The character Zip Coon made fun of free African Americans. Basically, it was called a dandy, and it was kind of a... The, the stereotype was an African-American who dressed more like high class, but spoke in a way that like you're like, oh, you don't know anything. That's kind of what that was about. And the song was popularized further during the Andrew Jackson administration. <clears throat> and then so the line in the chorus, oh, zip a doo din doo din doo din zip a doo din day. Influenced zippity doo from old Disney's Song of the South. So Disney, Disney's got some ties in this episode to some pretty racist stuff, which is kind of interesting. But I mean, at the time, at the time that they were made, it was not viewed as unacceptable. Obviously, we have a different lens that we're looking through now. Anyways, so moving on. So we're on to We Wish You a Merry Christmas, which I think this is our first. Is this our first Christmas carol we've had in this? No. In this installment? Yeah, in this installment. I know, it's not the first one we've had ever. Um, so it's written in 1830 or earlier by an unknown author. Obviously, it's a Christmas carol. It originated in the West Country of England. Arthur Worrell is responsible for the song's popularity. Uh, he made an arrangement for it for his madrigal singers. The song was also sung by mummers, which are... Um, it's an English tradition 
they, they were people who would sing carols at wealthy homes in exchange for Christmas gifts like figgy pudding. This was like so an old... Okay, yeah, yeah. That's oh, okay. that's... Look, I didn't even... I forgot that's the Christmas song that has the figgy pudding line. Yeah, so that's what... It was a tradition back in old England. It reminded me of a similar Christmas tradition in Mexico that I learned about growing up watching the Disney Three Caballeros movie. Although it's... I mean, there are definitely major differences, but the idea of people... I mean, caroling is kind of... I mean, it's done in America, too. Not Not too much nowadays, though, but... It's definitely a part of American history. Anyways, then we get to another hymn, Lord, Lead the Way the Savior Went, written in 1831 by William Crosswell. Uh, then we have The Bloom is on the Rye, My Pretty Jane, written in 1832 by Edward Fitzball and Henry Rowley Bishop, which is a ballad. And then we get to a song called Rock of Ages, another hymn. It was written in 1832 by Augustus Montague Toplady and Thomas Hastings. Um, the words were written in 1763 by Top Lady. Supposedly, the inspiration for it happened when Top Lady got caught in a storm while traveling the Mendip Hills in England, and he used a gap in uh, this gorge as a shelter, which inspired him, and he wrote down the words and ended up writing the song. The Fisher is today a landmark named after the song, so the spot where that happened at least supposedly happened is now a landmark that they named the rock of ages it's one of the four one of the great four anglican hymns of the 19th century which i guess i didn't end up writing now which the other four other three were but basically it was the four most performed and sung um anglican hymns in the 19th century uh obviously well, I guess maybe not obviously to everybody, but Rock of Ages is a reference to Jesus, comparing the smitten rock of the Old Testament and Jesus' smitten body at his crucifixion. Also, the title of the hymn was the inspiration for Def Leppard's song of the same name. Completely different song, but at the same title. Um, so Joe Elliott, when they were in the studio, found a hymn book left by a child from a church choir that had been there previously in the studio to record. And he saw the title, and they wrote a song based on the title Rock of Ages. <laughs> then we have Hark, Brothers, Hark, written in 1837 by John Hill Hewitt, which is a ballad. Uh, then next up is Woodman, Spare That Tree, written in 1837 by George Pope Morris and Henry Russell, a ballad which was originally titled The Oak. Um, the song is often quoted, uh, lyrics for the song are often quoted by environmentalists. And then we have a song called Old Rose in the Bow, Rouse in the Bow, Rose in the Bow. I don't know. Written in 1838 or earlier. Authors unknown. A folk song of British or Irish origin. It's a dark comedic take about a man known as Old Rose in the, B the Bow uh, as he nears the end of his life. It's a popular drinking or chorus song. Uh, it was used for several presidential campaign songs. The tune was. So the hero of Tippecanoe for William Henry Harrison, Harry the Honest and True for Henry Clay, and Lincoln and Liberty for Abraham Lincoln. Next up we get to Annie Laurie, Max Welton Braves is the other name. It's written in 1838 by William Douglas and Alicia Ann Spottiswood, uh, also known as Lady John Scott. It's a Scottish ballad said to have been written about Douglas's romance with Annie Laurie, although that's been disputed apparently. Um... Music with altered lyrics were added by Alicia Ann in 1834-1835. Uh, the dispute is that she claims that she wrote like the whole song, if I remember it from reading. So don't don't exactly quote me on that. Um, the popular March composer John Philip Sousa used the chorus in his March Bonnie Annie Laurie in 1883. This song, so I saw, I found the lyrics, and um, I don't have the lyrics in front of me, but I feel like i've heard the song before because i recognize the lyrics or at least have read the poem um it's called tis home where'er the heart is written in 1838 by robert dale owen and john hill hewitt it's a ballad then we have kathleen maverine maverine written in 1839 by annie barry crawford and frederick william nichols crouch that's a long name which is a ballad and then we get to old joe clark written in 1839 and between 1839 and, eight, and 1900 by an unknown author, an American mountain ballad folk song, which was popular among soldiers from eastern Kentucky during World War I. 
Uh, the lyrics refer to the real-life man Joseph Clark, who was a Kentucky mountaineer who was murdered in 1885. So, oh, okay. So I guess it was probably written somewhere between 1885 and 1939. Um, and it's a popular fiddle tune. Um, in fact, I've heard an old fiddle v- version by a really old country artist from like the 20s, like maybe Fiddle and John Carson or something. I don't remember offhand which artist. Uh, the Old Armchair, written in 1840 by Eliza Cook and Henry Russell, which is a parlor song. And then we get to Wee Willie Winky, a Scottish nursery rhyme written in 1841 by William Miller. So, interestingly, Willie Winky was um, the name used by Jacobite song, used in Jacobite songs for King William III. However, it's believed that the Willie Winky in this rhyme is unrelated to that. Like, they're not talking about... <laughs> the poem's not talking about King William III. Wee Willie Winky, for this poem, has since become closely associated with and a personification of bedtime and sleeping. Okay. And then we get to, oh boy, our first foreign title, at least non, non-English foreign type of foreign title, <clears throat> to clarify what I mean by foreign. Because a lot of these songs are foreign for us because they're from England, which is technically foreign. But it's still English title. So, um, it's French. So it's un, un Canadian Arant. I'm gonna see. I'm gonna punch it into Google Translate and see what it says. Punch that in, buddy. All right, let's turn up the volume and see how it pronounces it. Un Canadian Arant. I was totally off. A Wandering Canadian. That's the English title. It's a Wandering Canadian. But again, the the French title, the original French title is... Un Canadien errant. Un Canadien errant. Yeah, okay. Uh, Written in 1842 by Antoine (laughs) Jarin... I'm not going to put this in because it's a person's name, so it's probably not going to have that. By Antoine... Jarin La Joy? Because I'm pretty sure J's are Je. Um, anyways, it's an anthem. Uh, it was written for those exiled to the United States and even as far as Australia and from Canada, and for those who were condemned to death after the Lower Canada Rebellion of 1837 to 1838. It's weird. Like, from modern, a modern standpoint, thinking about Canada, you don't really think about revolting and stuff like Canada. This, I guess the stereotype for Canada, at least like as far as for, for what we know is just like, sorry about that. So sorry about that. Super polite. Except, does not make a hassle. Except for a certain, uh, show. Well, yeah. L- Letter Kenny definitely is because they're from Canada, because they're from Canada, they're, they're not working with that stereotype. In fact, minor spoiler, they definitely have a very stereotype American in uh, not in a later season. So anyways, um, so the song also became a popular anthem for Canadians in history of experience exile, particularly the Upper Canada Rebellion. So I guess there was an Upper Canada Rebellion and a Lower Canada Rebellion in the same year. So I don't know what the difference is and why it's not just called the Canada Rebellion or Canadian Rebellion. Uh, and the Acadians, who I guess are um, people from France who were exiled to Canada. Hey everybody, this is RJ, Ash, Ray, Brandon, Harrison, and Bronson. We host a Dungeons and Dragons podcast called Realms and Nerds. Some highlights of our show include wreaking havoc in every town we visit, blowing up hot tubs, killing off fan favorite characters, high necromancers, inappropriate wedding etiquette, and every now and then, actually good storytelling. Join us in the realms of Pridea for fun fantasy adventures. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or just about wherever you get podcasts.
next we get to Solomon Grundy. Born on a Monday. Uh, christened on Tuesday. Married on Wednesday. Grew ill on Thursday. That's what I thought, yeah. See, there's one that I always forget, and I don't know which one it is, if it's Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. Because I know Saturday has to be died on a Saturday, because buried on Sunday. Mm-hmm. So there's something that I'm missing. Solomon Grundy, born on a Monday. Christened on Tuesday. I feel like Wednesday is the day that I f- always forget. But yeah, so written in 1842 by an unknown author, an English nursery rhyme. And also, for those of you that might be as nerdy as us, might know the inspiration for a DC comic supervillain of the same name. Yeah. Yeah. Solomon Grundy. Actually, so fun fun aside, so in Batman the Animated Series, I think it was, for his appearance in that, or like Justice League, whatever, it's the same universe. I didn't realize, but apparently Mark Hamill, who voices the Joker in that series, also voices Solomon Grundy. I can see it. I mean, I can see it, and I've definitely heard it, but I didn't know that until recently. Uh, anyways, the next song is The Blue Juanita? No, because I'd have the A before the N. Juniata? Hold on. Google Translate, save us again. The Blue Juniata. I guess Juniata. Because it says it's... Unless it's not. If I take out the words that are definitely English... Juniata. I guess it is. It's English. Juniata. I don't know what Juniata is. Anyways, the Blue Juniata, written in 1843 by Marion Dix Sullivan, a parlor song, one of the most popular songs of the 19th century, and the first commercially successful song written by an American woman. Go feminism. Uh, Mark Twain references the song in his autobiography, uh, and in country music was notably recorded in 1937 by both Roy Rogers and the Sons of the Pioneers. All right, we're back at it again. You know what's coming. All right, this song. It's your boy, racism. <laughs> this song is called <clears throat> Old Dan Tucker, uh, written in 1843 or earlier by an unknown author, theorized to be written by Dan Emmett, who was a minstrel performer. Um, it's a folk slash minstrel song. And it was popularized by the minstrel troupe, the Virginia Minstrels, in 1843, of which Dan Emmett was a member. So the original, this song has been, because um, the way minstrelsy and folk music is, there are literally hundreds of versions of the song, hundreds of variations of verses. Um, And so the song, in its probably most modern form, is not necessarily a racist song. But the original version was. It was about an African-American man driven by sex, violence, drinking, and social taboos. And like I said, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of variations of the lyrics since it was an oral tradition. So there's non-racist versions of the song out there. It's it's one of the... It's a, it's a, it's a song that kind of lived past minstrelsy. Well, I mean... It also helped that there are there were political variations of the song made, which is a popular trend with this song. Uh, there was even one about the might of Abraham Lincoln that was popular during the Civil War. Is um, I think it was about the presidential one of the presidential elections. Uh, and in country music was re- recorded by Fiddle and John Carson in 1925, which I th- I don't remember if uh, no I think that one had lyrics. All right, next up we have Open Thy Lattice, Love, written in 1843 by George Pope Morris and Stephen Foster. It was a ballad. This was the first published song by the renowned American composer Stephen Foster, and he was only 18. So this, uh, yeah, Stephen Foster is regarded as one of the first, maybe the first major American composer, especially of folk songs, and... Basically, everybody still to this day knows who he is. And this is the first song of his, so he'll be coming up, I think, more so in the next installment, because we're only going to 1845, and we're already in 1843. So there's only a handful of songs written by him in this part. Uh, All right, on to some more songs that are well-known to this day. So next up is Skip to My Lou. Mm-hmm. Skip to my mm-hmm. Skip to my 
written in 1843 by an unknown author, a folk song. So Lou, L-O-U, comes from the word Lou, L-O-O, which is the Scottish word for love. Skip to my love. Yep. Skip to my love, my darling. It was a popular, yeah, it does. It was a popular partner stealing or partner swapping dance. Uh, it was also a popular lyrical game during Abraham Lincoln's childhood, and to this day is a popular children's song. And it is commonly used as an icebreaker at social events. Was? You mean? What? Used it as was, an icebreaker? It, it was used as an icebreaker? No, there's still dancing events that use that song. Not nearly as much today, but I'm sure there still is in like rural America. Uh, then we have the Old Grey Mare. Which is, <laughs> this one's going to be interesting. Um, so, it was written in 1843 or later by an unknown author. It's a folk song or children's song. Uh, mare is sometimes substituted with mule, so the old gray mule. And it might be, po- it's possibly based on the performance of the horse Lady Suffolk, who was the first horse recorded trotting a mile in less than two and a half minutes. That's fast, I think. I don't know a lot about horses, but that sounds fast to me. So, interesting fact I learned about this song I didn't... Because I'm, I'm vaguely familiar with the song, but I didn't know this. Um, so, also, quick note, because I just realized I forgot about this during our uh, opening kind of uh, listener discretion piece. Um, there's going to be a cuss word coming up. But it's not just me shouting an obscenity for the heck of it. It's part of the name of the title of the song, which is generally song titles and, um, I guess, maybe quotes by country artists or album titles or something. Basically, anything that's a quote or a title is going to be really the only time that we'll have cussing on this show. And generally, it's for historical or uh, commentary context. So, there's a song from the 1890s called We Don't Give a Damn which is set to the tune of the Old Grey Mare. It's a song long associated with opponents of Michigan sports teams. Uh, It possibly started with a group of Cornell alumni uh, and is now closely associated with the University of Michigan and Ohio State sports rivalry. I did not know about that. I also don't really follow college sports as much as other levels, particularly... I mainly watch football, and that's the level of football I don't usually watch as much as NFL or high school. Uh, Anyways, so the next song is another song that basically everybody knows. Lovely Fan. Who? I don't know. I don't even know if that was the correct way to pronounce it. It's definitely way more commonly known as Buffalo Gals. Yeah, written in 1844 by John Hodges. It's a western or minstrel. It's a western or minstrel song. John Hodges, who wrote it, was a minstrel performer. This is another song that definitely outlived minstrelsy, which is fortunate because it's a fun song. So minstrel performers um, would often alter the word buffalo and replace it, you know, to fit for local audiences. So like. St. Louis gals or Boston gals. Okay, that's kind of neat. Yeah. Like I said, it outgrew its minstrel origins, fortunately, and became one of the most popular Western songs of all time uh, because it's closely associated with Western music. Western, like cowboys. Western. Um, The lyrics are a reference to the many female dancing girls found in bars, dives, and brothels in Buffalo at the time. The song was featured in many in Western films like 1941's Texas and 1952's High Noon, but is likely today best known for its inclusion in the 1946 film It's a Wonderful Life. Also, so Taco Bell's new uh, limited time offer they have right now, the buffalo chicken nacho fries and the buffalo chicken burrito. It it makes me think of that song, because I'm like, Buffalo Chicken, come out tonight. So, anyways, I don't know why. My brain's weird. It's so weird, dude. Yeah, I know. All right. um, Next, we have a piece called The Indian's Prayer. Uh, The words are by an unknown author, but the music was written in 1846 by I.B. Woodbury. 
It's a ballad or folk song. It was thought to be written by a boy who left uh, college to go back west to his previous life with his Native American tribe, given what the song is about, because that's what it's about. Uh, and then next we have another popular Christmas carol, Cantique de Noel, which I'm sure I botched, so Google, save me. Cantique de Noel. Okay, it's French again. You didn't actually do that bad this time. I did awful on that first word. Interestingly, apparently the literal translation from French to English for that is Christmas carols. <laughs> I didn't know that. But the, the English title from the translated version is O Holy Night. Um, written in 1847 by... <laughs> oh, French. Why do you have to be the way that you are? Pashid, Pasid, Capu, Capau, and Adolf, Adolf... I'm going to assume it's Adolf, and just has the E on the end. Adolf Adam. Uh, the English translation was by John Sullivan Dwight. It's a Christmas carol. The original French and the translated English versions, as well as most other translations, focus on the birth of Jesus as the redemption of humanity. The words were written in 1843 as a celebration of the renovation of the church organ in... I'm not even going to try and pronounce it. I'm just going to pop it into Google Translate. Rick That's what I'm going to assume. It says English, but I think it's just because it's the name of... a. It's for, for, Obviously, it's in France, because it's a French song. Um, it was notably recorded by in country music by Martina McBride and Josh Grayson. And then we have Dinah Deer, written in 1847 by Philip Klitz, which is a British ballad. And then we have Miss Ginger, also written by Philip Klitz in 1847, again, a British ballad. So the next song... It's called Give Me My Arrows and Give Me My Bow, written in 1848 by Samuel Lover. Uh, it's an Irish ballad, but um, because Samuel Lover was uh, from Ireland. However, the song was written while he was on a trip to the United States, and when he published the song, he included the following introduction, like, story thing. Quote, In the great North American lakes, there are islands bearing the name of Manitou, which signifies the Great Spirit. An Indian tradition declares that in these islands the Great Spirit concealed the precious metals, thereby showing that he did not desire they should be possessed by man, and that whenever some rash mortal has attempted to obtain treasure from the Manitou Isle, his canoe was always overwhelmed by a tempest. The Pale Faces, however, fearless... A lot of this is in quotes because he's quoting the Native Americans. Uh, the Pale Faces, however, fearless of Manitou's thunder are now working the extensive mineral region of the lakes, end quote. Uh, so the Native Americans referred to here are the Algonquians. Algonquins, Algonquins yeah. yeah uh, which are from this area because apparently this was written about something that happened at the Great Lakes here in, um, in Michigan, around Michigan. If I remember correctly, the Algonquins, I think it was, I think Algonquin actually means, it's like a, it's like a language sort of grouping. Huh. Yeah, because they were they were pretty branched out. It's like um, northeast, like midwestish, northeastish, and into Canada. I remember seeing for like where they were kind of where they lived. Yeah. So the Native Americans, the Algonquins, name they named these islands in the Great Lakes after Manitou, who in their theology was the the spiritual life force. So that was I found that That's really interesting. Yeah, that, I found that super interesting. Uh, and then we get to the next song, which I think I mentioned in passing earlier, Oh Susanna. Susanna. Written in 1848 by Stephen Foster, America's America's musical writer of the 19th century. That's really what he was. Um, a western song or folk ballad. Again, as was common at the time, performed by many minstrel troops. Uh, interestingly, all these troops claimed a copyright on this song, even though it was written by Stephen Foster, they claimed it was theirs. So Stephen Foster, before 1851, only earned $100 on the song, which, what? which when we're in 2020, but obviously they, the, the financial, the online calculator that I, the fact the, the online calculator I used only brought it up to 2019 so anyways in 2019 a hundred dollars equates to three thousand and seventy three dollars in 2019 from 1850 oh that's 
actually not too bad. That's not great. It's not great, but it's better no, than it's, I thought it was going to be. Especially in music, like that's not great. He they they he didn't he lost a lot of potential money off of that. However, in 1851, Foster was offered a sheet music publishing deal by Firth Ponding Company. He'd make two cents for every copy of sheet music sold, uh, which made him the first fully professional songwriter in the United States. So, two cents doesn't sound like a lot, but the song, this song, Oh Susanna, was the first American song to surpass sales of over 5,000 copies of sheet music, selling over 100,000 copies. Which means Foster earned over $2,000 on the sheet music just for that song, which in translated to 2019 is $61,460. Which, for one song, is that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, also, Susanna may be in reference to Foster's deceased sister Charlotte, whose middle name was Susanna, although with an H at the end, apparently. So it was one of only a few songs that was written by Foster, all of which, for these songs that included it were among his early works that contained the n-word so not great but there's there's a light at the end of the tunnel with this story uh which i'll get to here in a second uh it became the unofficial anthem of the 49ers which was a group of people that moved to california in 1949 during the california gold rush uh it's ranked one of the top 100 western songs of all time again western being like you know cowboys and native americans yeehaw. and yeehaw yeah um it was notably used in the 1942 mary melodies cartoon the wacky wabbit it was sung by elmer fudd in the opening of the short eventually joined by bugs bunny which i really love that cartoon that's a good one um so the next song nelly was a lady written in 1848 again by stephen foster uh, parlor song, ballad. Uh, it's another tune that was popularized in minstrel shows. And like I said, shining light at the end of the tunnel here for Mr. Foster with the whole racism thing. So the song is told from the point of view of an old slave who is reminiscing about his deceased wife. So Stephen Foster's songs, unlike most of the popular songs during this time, did not treat African-Americans simply as caricatures, poking fun at them. Uh, but instead, he wrote songs about them that empathize with them and their sufferings. So, like, this is about an old man, African-American man, whose wife died, and him just reminiscing about it. Which, at the time, that kind of song was basically unheard of. It's really cool that, like, the most prolific songwriter of this era treated them with... A level of respect basically unheard of at that time among white Americans, which so that's that's really cool. So I I think I think that's good on him. Um, and we're gonna end this portion of the list, ending the 1840s with "Once in Royal David City," written in 1849 by Cecil Francis Alexander. I don't know, <laughs> and Henry Gauntlet, uh, another. French. I don't French know if that. I don't know. If, I don't know if that was French. Actually, um, might have been. So it's a Christmas Carol. Um, it's the most famous hymn that of that Gauntlet did. Henry Gauntlet did, um, who said it to the tune of a song called Irby. Apparently, Gauntlet composed or and like a combination of composing originally and setting words to music making hymnals for over a thousand hymns in his lifetime which is really crazy and really cool and the song has begun king's college chapel cambridge's so basically the 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 chapel at cambridge college over in the uk um it's begun their christmas eve services since 1919 which i think so like every year they that's the first song played during the evening service on christmas eve so that's really cool and that's for for this portion of the the popular country music history, that's all I've got. And I'd like to pose an idea for you for something that we may maybe not always would do, but something I've been thinking about to because I, I mentioned you know like trying to keep up with current country music, even if we because we tried that one that one time where it was just looking through country music news. Yeah. 
and it just kind of there wasn't a lot of news that we found or something. I don't yeah. know. It might have been a slow day. It might have just been the way Twitter's algorithm worked for me. But we have a YouTube channel for our podcast to put the episodes up. And eventually, if I ever get around to actually doing it, arranging playlists with the music that we talk about. Anyways, that's not the point I'm trying to get to. So the point I'm trying to get to is so with the YouTube channel. So the idea I have is going through the past like every every one we meet up putting a little bit of time and just like going through the subscription feed to see like like briefly mention new music that's out or news if there's any like sort of news because that's at least for me for like finding music especially with my old car which didn't have a radio like my car now does the, the way that i found new country music that was like new newly released was through social media and through YouTube. So I'm thinking about maybe just like, so this is like what's new in, these are some new songs or releases based on our YouTube subscription feed. Now, is that something that sounds like something we might want to look at doing or something? Yeah. Okay. Like, I don't know. I guess right now I could quick see. Um. Yeah. All right. So let's, uh, let's give this a, test run see what's see what's new okay so remember the cma awards yeah the subscription feed goes for me goes all the way back to their uploads of the performances from that so three months ago this my subscription feed goes back for this channel so cma awards stuff oh yeah let's let's just see let's find starting like the last week Alan Jackson did a TV show or special called Precious Memories a week weekend or two ago. And one of the songs he performed looks like it was The Old Rugged Cross. Really cool. Ooh, so upcoming. Arriving tomorrow morning. Ashley McBride's got a new song, First Thing I Reach For. Um, yeah, we'll have to I'll have to fine tune the subscription feed because yeah. there's a basically the everything. It might just be nobody's releasing anything right now, or I'm just not subscribed well, to all the channels. It's really like it's, in reality, it's pretty close to the new. It's pretty close to the start of the year, so yeah. But that doesn't mean people are like Justin Moore. I know released an album like last month. There's not really like a. It's not like film where there's like summer blockbusters and then like Christmas Day drops a lot of movies and things like that there's not and there there kind of is but generally artists don't really have a like artists for them in and of themselves generally release music every couple of years but there's not like a general part of the year when new music is dropped it's pretty much constantly new music so i don't know i think i'm just I think I'd, i'm just uh, not subscribed to all the channels that i need to be subscribed to and that or there's just those couple channels like uploading a surplus of videos. Maybe a combination. But anyways, I guess then that's where we'll leave it for this installment. Hope you've had fun playing your Switch. I had it a lot. I had some stuff. Leave me alone. <laughs> I had I'm a long day. I'm kidding. Listen, Ray. It's fine. You're going to be literally... I'm literally not even going to hardly talk in the next episode, probably. Oh, no. Yeah, you guys... You guys are going to get a full review. I'm going to the um, Garth Brooks concert this weekend in Detroit. You guys are going to get a full review of it next Thursday. It's going to be I'm wicked. excited. It's going to be wicked. I'm sad I could not get to the concert. But oh. I it's. I mean, hey, it's not like I didn't try. The day the tickets went up, I went on there and I was like, let's see about getting a ticket. They were already sold out. Yeah, my wife had to... My wife... Like, sat online for, like, an hour or two trying to get those tickets. Yeah, they sell out really quick. They had... So, I don't know if you've heard, but there's a new country radio station around GR. Yeah. Thunder. Thunder 107.3. There's another one, too. There's another, another one. What's that one called? Gethro? Gethro? Gethro. What, what's the... Do you know the FM... Is it FM or AM? It's FM. Do you know what station it's on? Because nope. I haven't found it. Oh. Because the only country radio stations I know of around the area that I have on my presets, I have B93, 
I have Thunder. I have Big Country for up in Big Rapids, and I have Nash Icon, which is you like... You might really like Gethro, because Gethro plays a lot of the old, like, the real old stuff. I would love that. I'd love to have more variety, because all, all three of them, while they do play old stuff, mainly play, like, the new stuff. Like, also, Thunder... I don't know, have you been listening to Thunder 107.3 at all? Yeah, I listen to it every morning on the way to work. I didn't realize, like... Because I remember... We've talked about this before, like, B93, I remember back when they would be like, nobody plays more country. That's literally what Thunder says now. Like, that's their slogan, nobody plays more country. I was like, oh, I wonder if that B93 can't use that anymore because, I don't know if it was because they had trademarked and lost the trademark, or maybe just because it wasn't true anymore, or, like, what? Maybe they just decided to, like, change what it was. But, like, Thunder 107.3, to me, feels like... Other than obviously the music is current for now, feels like old. it feels like old B ninety three from like the the, the aughts. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's what I like about it. It's pro- like I, I still love B ninety three, especially Conrad. Conrad's my dude, but like Thunder is really I. I'm surprised it took me so long because I kept seeing ads for it like <laughs> at the bathrooms of places. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, like like the, like the movie theater or and, the uh, or flows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was like, huh. But because I go to Sculpt and Ferris, I listen to Big Country. That one actually that one actually comes in okay down here. I don't know about out here necessarily, but direct almost directly south over in Cedar, it, it comes in alright. Like it'll still it's it'll like the, it's the opposite effect with like Thunder up in Big Rapids where it'll mostly come in alright with some crackling. But occasionally, like, some other station that's on the same FM... Same bandwidth, Same yeah. bandwidth will, like, pop in. Maybe it wasn't that station. No, it was... I remember it was. I was listening to, like, The Brew. And I and I pulled... And I, like, stopped at a stoplight. And then all of a sudden, I heard some dude talk about some sort of classical music. I was like, I don't think this is The Brew. <laughs> but but Thunder... Or not Thunder, but Big Country does that kind of around, around here. I'll sometimes hear a couple... Some crackles and some some FM some bandwidth interference with another station, but it's it still comes in all right. And I mean, all the Grand most of the Grand Rapids stations do all right when I'm on the main stretch up in Bear Rapids. It's like when I get onto Northland or wh- whatever it's called up there, what it turns into like right in front of the school. When I get up to like by the stoplights, it'll they'll all just turn to static and I'll have to like till I get back to big country. Okay, so how do I spell this one, this new one? Gethro? Gethro. Is it like Jethro, but with a G? It G- might be Jeffro. Jeffro? It's either Gethro or Jeffro. Okay, I'm just going to, like, Google it instead. It's in... Do you know where it's based? Because, like... Grand Rapids. Okay. They have... See, their tagline's really funny, too. It's hoping to be your third favorite country station. <laughs> that's literally what they do? Yeah, that's their, that's their tag. Jethro FM, yeah. Yeah. It's Wyoming Mission in the Grand Rapids area. Wow, how have I not heard about them? Country with a twist, classic country. Uh, Five months in the day and 250 critical hours. Interesting. I did not. So listen to this. So, WYGR, 1530, oh, 1530 AM. Oh, it's an AM station? Apparently, maybe. Oh, no, we'll see. Oh, here we go. All right, yeah, it's also on FM. It's a radio station broadcasting in classic country format, licensed to Wyoming, Michigan, and serving the Grand Rapids area. Station operates at 500 watts during the day and 250 watts critical hours, but must sign off at night to protect 1530 WCKY in Cincinnati. So apparently, it's not available at night. Yeah, well, that makes sense because we only we listen to it on a ride home from work. So yeah, so um, it's simulcast on FM translator W235BN at 94.9. That might be. Is that the station I've got it on? I've got 94 point something on mine, but I don't know if it's that or if it's a station out in Grand Haven. Because there's like an oldie station in Grand Haven. There's also, it might be that. And if it's that one, it comes in really awful on my car stare, on my radio, on my car. Like it never comes in hardly, if that's the station. Oh, wow. It's apparently, apparently that's not it because it says that it can be heard in the immediate Grand Rapids area as far north as Cedar Springs and Allendale. Biggest way to co-channel WMMQ out of East Lansing, east of Grand Rapids, and fellow co-channel WKZC north and west of the Grand Rapids area. Oh, that might be why. A second tr- FM translator, W2, 
5.8 DF and Lowell's added in February 2019. Hmm. It's a good station. They play All a lot right, of well, stuff that It also apparently is on 99.5 for Lowell. Which Lowell is basically like Grand Rapids but Easter. So I'm going to try both of those. See if either of those come up. You might be able to get it out here. That's that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I might, I'm might. i going to probably try it. But anyways, so that's going to be it for us for this episode. Thank you everybody for listening. Uh, I've been RJ. He's been Ray. And I think that we should uh, ride off into the sunset. Me and ever so when there's no place like